The name of this podcast is called Read a Book. And the book we are reading is called The War on Kids by Kara H. Drennan. How America Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way. Reading Chapter 1, Pioneer to Pariah, The Arc of American Juvenile Justice. From page 12 to 16. In 1999, when he was 14 years old, Control Jackson and two friends decided to rob a video store in Arkansas. Control learned while en route to the store that one of his friends had bought along a sawed-off shotgun. He decided to wait outside the video store. Once inside, Control's friend pointed the gun at the clerk and demanded money from her. She refused. After a few minutes, Control walked inside the store to find his friend insisting that the clerk give up the money. At trial, it was disputed whether Control said to the clerk, We ain't playing, or whether he said to his friends, I thought you all was playing. Either way, the clerk refused to hand over the money and threatened to call the police. Control's friend shot and killed her. All three boys fled the store empty-handed. Arkansas law allows prosecutors to unilaterally transfer 14-year-olds out of the juvenile court system into adult court if they are charged with certain serious crimes. In Contrell's case, the prosecutor exercised his discretion and charged him as an adult with capital felony murder and aggravated robbery, even though Contrell was barely old enough to attend high school. Felony murder, the capital charge in Contrell's case, has long been disputed as unjust in American criminal law, even as it applies to adults. The theory of felony murder charge is this. Certain felonies are so inherently dangerous that if a person intends to engage in the felony, the law holds them responsible for any death that occurs during the commission of that felony, whether the defendant intent, intended the death or not. Some have argued that this transferred intent is inherently unfair. It's one thing to be held responsible for one's intention to rob a store, but it's another thing to impute the intent to kill when death appears an accident incidental to the felony. Even more contentious, though is that in the felony murder context, co-defendants can be held responsible for the actions of each other. So in Contrell's case, not only is it questionable whether he intended to carry out the robbery, but also he was not the trigger man. He definitely did not intend to shoot and kill the clerk. Yet the theory of felony murder holds him responsible for her death. Once in adult court, a jury convicted Contrell of both crimes, and Arkansas law at the time permitted only one sentence life without parole. Terrence Graham was also sentenced to life without parole, but his case was even more shocking because it was not a homicide conviction. Recall the facts of this case from the introduction. In 2003, when he was 16, Terrence and some friends tried to rob a restaurant in Jacksonville. Confronted by an undoubtedly angry manager, they fled and took no money. Before fleeing, one of Terrence's accomplices struck the manager in the head with a metal ball. The manager required stitches for his head wound. Terrence was arrested and charged with armed burglary and attempted robbery. The prosecutor, who under Florida law enjoyed sole discretion regarding whether to charge Terrence as a juvenile or adult, chose to file his case in adult court. Terrence pleaded guilty to both charges and received a term of three years probation. He was required to spend the first year of his probation in the adult county jail but he received credit for the time he had spent in jail awaiting trial and was released in 2004. Less than six months later, Terrence was arrested again allegedly for his involvement in a home invasion robbery. The state never pursued those new charges because Terrence's probation officer 
filed with the trial court and affidavit asserting that he had violated several conditions of his probation, including associating with persons engaged in criminal activity and fleeing from law enforcement. A difficult trial judge from one from the one who had accepted Terrence's previous guilty plea presided over a sentencing hear hearing for the probation violations. Terrence insisted that he had no involvement in the home invasion robbery, but he did admit to violating his probation conditions by fleeing from police. Violating his probation terms exposed him to the original sentence hanging over him from the attempted robbery of the barbecue restaurant. Under Florida law, Terrence faced anywhere from five, five years to life imprisonment. The state asked for a 45-year sentence, 30 years on the armed burglary count, and 15 years on the attempted robbery count. Terrence's lawyer requested... The name of this podcast is called The War on Kids by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing from page 14. Under Florida law, Terrence faced anywhere from five years to life imprisonment. The state asked for a 45-year sentence, 30 years for the armed burglary count, and 15 years for the attempted robbery count. Terrence's lawyer requested a five-year minimum sentence, and the Florida Department of Corrections recommended that Terrence received even less prison time, four years maximum. The judge imposed life without parole before announcing the sentence. The judge made the following statement. Mr. Graham, as I look back on your case, Yours is really candidly a sad situation. You had, as far as I could tell, you had quite a family structure. You had a lot of people who wanted to try and help. You get your life turned around, including the court system. And you had a judge who took the step to try to give you direction through his probation order to give you a chance to get back onto track. And I don't know why it is that you threw your life away. I don't know why, but you did. And that is what is so sad about this today is that you have actually been given the chance to get through this. The original charge, which was a very serious charge to begin with, the attempted robbery with a weapon was a very serious charge. And I don't understand why you will be given such a great opportunity to do something with your life and why you would throw it away. The only thing that I could rationalize is that you decided that this is how you were going to lead your life and that there's nothing that we could do for you. And as the state pointed out, that this is an escalating pattern of criminal conduct on your part that we can't help you any further. We can't do anything to deter you. This is the way you're going to lead your life, and I don't know why you're going to. You made that decision. I have no idea, but evidently, this is what you decided to do. So then it becomes a focus. If I can't do anything to help you, if I can't do anything to get you back on the right path, then I have to start focusing on the community and trying to protect the community from your actions. And unfortunately, that is where we are today, is I don't see where I could do anything to help you any further. You've evidently decided this is the direction you're going to take in life, and it's unfortunate that you made that choice. I have reviewed the statute. I don't see any further juvenile sanctions will be appropriate. I don't see where any youthful offender sanctions will be appropriate. Given your escalating pattern of criminal conduct, it is apparent to the court that you have decided that this is the way you're going to live your life and that the only thing I could do now is to try and protect the community from your actions. Nothing in the judge's decision reflected Terrence's youth, the mitigation circumstances of his childhood, or the various ways in which the state of Florida had failed him as a minor. 
The judge failed to account for the fact that Terrence had grown up in abject poverty with two crack-addicted parents, or the fact that Terrence had been physically and verbally abused from the time he was a toddler. The judge made no mention of the fact that the Florida Department of Children and Families had files on incidents relating to Terrence's mother and her children dating back to when Terrence was only three years old, including questions whether Terrence and his brother should be removed from the home because there was no food. Apparently, none of this history made it to the judge's decision-making process. It certainly was not mentioned as sentencing. Terrence was an adult in the eyes of the law, and the law permitted a life without parole sentence. At the age of 17, he was sentenced to die in prison. Like Terrence Graham and Control Jackson, more than 200,000 juveniles are charged in adult criminal court each year. Their experiences in the adult criminal court system will be inconceivable to those Americans who invented the juvenile court at the turn of the 20th century. To begin, it is very easy and common for children today to be removed from the juvenile court and charged as adults. Many states set no minimum age at which a child can be removed from juvenile court. And as a result, children as young as six in some states can be transferred out of juvenile court into adult court without any ju judicial oversight. Once in adult court, a juvenile defendant enjoys the right to counsel as other defendants, but there is no guarantee that this attorney will be experienced in representing juveniles. Precisely because they are young, juvenile defendants are less equipped to assist in their own representation. They are less capable of considering the long-term consequences associated with a plea bargain or sentence. They are more susceptible to coercion by the state. If convicted, children can be jailed with adult inmates, even in dormitory-style arrangements. The practice continues despite the fact that Congress had engaged legislation advising of the dire risk of sexual and physical assault, and despite the research demonstrating that juveniles housed in adult prisons are exponentially more likely to commit suicide. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and we're reading The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan, Chapter 1. Part A, The Arc of American Juvenile Justice First established in Illinois in 1899, juvenile justice is now a well-established feature of our criminal justice system. Every jurisdiction in the country has separate juvenile justice system. Prompted by progressive era reformers, the early juvenile court was attentive to the differences between adults and children and emphasized age-appropriate punishment and treatment for juvenile offenders. As described by Professor Aaron Kupchik, an expert on juvenile justice, founders of the juvenile justice system believed that juveniles who misbehaved were products of pathological environments rather than instinctively evil. The target of the juvenile justice system was deprivation, not the deprivation, of delinquent youth. The court's mission was to resocialize youth and provide them with the necessary tools for adopting a moral lifestyle. Over time, several features emerged as defining attributes of the juvenile justice system. 1. A degree of informality relative to criminal court proceedings. 2. Great discretion afforded to the judge who was able to tailor the intervention to the particular juvenile in each case. And 3. A fundamental shared belief that childhood is a period of dependency and risk where the state had a role to play for a child in jeopardy. Today, developed countries around the world have installed juvenile justice system modeled after the American system. Vanderbilt Professor of Law Terry Maroney has described three primary phases in the development of American juvenile justice prior to the immediate era that we are entering. The first phase already discussed 
was prompted by the rehabilitative idea of the late 19th century, and it expressed optimism about the juvenile's capacity for change and society's obligation to support that change. The Supreme Court explained this first phase in the following way. The child essentially good, as early reformers saw it, was to made to feel that he is object of state's care and solicitude, not that he was under arrest or on trial. The rules of criminal procedure was therefore altogether inapplicable. The apparent rigidities, technicalities, and harshness which they observed in both substantive and procedural criminal law were therefore to be discarded. The idea of crime and punishment was to be abandoned. While the intentions of early juvenile justice advocates may have been noble, in practice, juvenile courts did not always live up to the paternalistic aims. By the middle of the 20th century, juvenile advocates argued that the flexibility of the juvenile court, while born of a caretaking concept, was resulting in arbitrary outcomes for juveniles and the denial of basic procedural rights familiar to American law. In 1966, the Supreme Court confronted these claims in Kent v. United States. The case entered, centered on Morris Kent Jr., who first entered Washington, D.C.'s juvenile justice system at age 14. At that time, Kent was arrested for breaking into homes and for attempted purse snatching. He was placed on probation and released to his mother's custody. Two years later, during his probation period, D.C. police identified Kent as the primary suspect in burglary and rape case. Police apprehending Kent, took him to custody, interrogated him, and detained him for a week. Ultimately, with no hearing, and over the objection of counsel retained by Kent's mother, the juvenile court judge transferred Kent's case to adult criminal court. He was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to serve between 30 and 90 years. This podcast is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan, Chapter 1, Part A, Continued. The Supreme Court focused on the narrow issue of the transfer decision and held that while the judge enjoyed great latitude under the relevant transfer statute, that latitude was not complete. Moreover, the court held that the statute did not confer upon the juvenile court a license for arbitrary procedure. At the same time, the court noted that the state had deprived Kent of basic procedural safeguards that he would have enjoyed had he been an adult. For example, Kent was deprived of liberty for more than a week without any kind of probable cause hearing before a judge, and he was interrogated in the absence of counsel and without any advice regarding his right to remain silent and the right of access to counsel. The court held that juveniles like Kent were entitled to a hearing before the transfer decision to adult court could be made, that his lawyer had a right to access to material relevant to the transfer decision, and that the juvenile court was required to provide some articulation of reasons for transferring this case. One year later, the Supreme Court dealt with a similar claim from a juvenile charged with a crime in the case of Henry Galt. An Arizona juvenile court judge sentenced Galt, 15 years old, to six months probation for being in the company of another boy who had stolen a wallet from a lady's purse. During the, that six-month probationary period, Galt and another teenager was accused of making a lewd phone call to a neighbor. 
police picked Galt up at his home while both of his parents were at work, arrested him, and took him to a juvenile detention center without notifying his parents. In the following days and weeks, the entire process for determining Galt's guilt or innocence was informal and ill-informed. The complaining neighbor never appeared in the court. The state never presented Galt's parents with notice of formal charges against their son, and no rationale was offered either for detaining Galt initially or for releasing him pending his final hearing. Ultimately, the juvenile judge determined that Galt had made the lewd phone call and he sentenced Galt to six years in a state industrial school with only a conclusory explanation. After a full hearing and due deliberation, the court finds that the said minor is a delinquent child. Had Galt been in an adult convicted of the same lewd phone call, he would have faced a penalty of five to fifty dollars or imprisonment for not more than two months. The Supreme Court acknowledged that regardless of the history of the juvenile court model and its paternalistic ethos, there was nothing civil about the proceedings that resulted in Galt's six-year prison sentence. There were criminal proceedings for all intents and purposes. Accordingly, the court held that Galt had a right to notice of the charges against him, a right to counsel during the proceedings at the state's expense if necessary the right to be free from self-incrimination, and a right to confrontation and cross-examination of witness. In both Kent and Galt, the Supreme Court recognized that the juveniles in questions were dealing with the worst of both words, worlds. They neither enjoyed the procedural safeguards according to adult criminal defendants, nor the solicitude of a juvenile court faced on rehabilitation. According to Professor Moroni, these cases marked the zenith of the due process era of juvenile justice, the second phase in the development of American juvenile law. Despite the added procedural protection for kids, the American juvenile justice system shifted radically to a posture of fear and containment in the late 20th century, the third phase of juvenile law development. As discussed in the introduction, the nation experienced raising violent crime rates for most of the later half of the 20th century and legislators responded by enacting a host of generally applicable tough-on-crime policies. In the 1990s, Princeton political scientist John J. DeLillo predicted the emergence of juvenile super-predator, that there will be hordes upon hordes of depraved teenagers resorting to unspeakable brutality, not tethered by conscience. He was wrong, and he later admitted as much. In the 17 years between 1994 and 2011, murders by children actually fell by two-thirds. Before his theory was debunked, though, lasting damage to kids in the system was done, as states shifted to expose children to ever harsher procedures and punishments. By the beginning of the 21st century, the United States was institutional outlier in its harsh sentences for juvenile criminal defendants. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and we are reading The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost His Way by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing Chapter 1, reading Section B, Juvenile Transfer Law, Kids in Adult Court. From the inception of the juvenile court in the mid-1970s, a child who was accused of committing a crime was initially and usually processed in the juvenile justice system. In that system, the judge enjoyed great power and flexibility relative to today's criminal court judges. 
The ethic of parents patriae permeated the juvenile court and typically prompted judges to provide social services that were lacking for the youth offender. In this context, it was the juvenile judge's decision when and if to transfer a child to adult court. Moreover, the transfer decision involved a hearing at which the state had to persuade the juvenile judge that the judge was not amenable, that the juvenile was not amenable to rehabilitation, had committed a crime too serious for adjudication in juvenile court, given its punitive limits or both. Transfer was not common. It was the exception. Beginning in the 1970s, states amended their laws, making it easier for children to be prosecuted in adult criminal court. These laws operated in a number of ways. Some laws lowered the age at which a child could be transferred into adult court. Some required transfer when a juvenile was charged with certain offenses. And others still gave prosecutors the discretion to determine on their own whether to file a case in juvenile or adult court. As juvenile law scholars have noted, despite some legislative variety, the net result of this trend was to shift greater power to prosecutors away from the juvenile judges and to make juvenile transfer process simple and common. Today, all states have transfer laws that permit adult criminal prosecution of some young defendants. Even though these defendants will otherwise qualify for adjudication in juvenile court because of their age, most states have multiple mechanisms for transferring a child out of the juvenile's court jurisdiction into adult criminal court. 45 states retain the traditional process of judicial waiver for some kids, whereby the prosecutor bears the burden of proving why the kids should be transferred to adult court. However, 29 states have statutes excluding certain youth from juvenile court based upon the nature of the charged offense. Murder is the most common charge for automatic transfer to adult court under these statutes, but many of the 29 states also include less serious offenses and offenses that can vary widely by factual context, such as assault, robbery, and drug offenses. Laws of 15 states specify crimes for which both the juvenile court and adult criminal court have jurisdiction, leaving the question of where to process the child entirely to the prosecutor's discretion. These prosecutors Prosecutorial discretion or direct file statutes are typically silent regarding the standards or protocols for whether or to file charges in adult court and regardless of the criteria employed. There is no evidentiary hearing, no record of the prosecutor's decision, and no basis upon which the juvenile defendant can challenge the judgment. As a result, it is possible that prosecutorial discretion laws in some places operate like statutory exclusions sweeping whole categories into criminal court with little or no individualized consideration. Finally, 34 states have once an adult, always an adult provisions, meaning that once a child has been convicted in adult court, any future adjudications for that child will take place in adult court. According to scholars in the Supreme Court alike, direct file laws have been most problematic for youth. Berkeley law professor Frank Zimring, for example, has posited that get tough transfer legislation from the 1990s may have been an attempt to push the allocation of power in juvenile courts closer to the model of prosecutorial domination that has been characteristics of criminal courts in the United States for a generation. Moreover, whether intentional or not, direct file laws certainly create more power or less work for the juvenile court prosecutors, or both. In this recent Miller v. Alabama decision, the Supreme Court noted the dangers of direct files laws for juveniles. Several states at time lodged the decision exclusively in the hands of prosecutors, again with no statutory 
mechanism for judicial reevaluation, and those prosecutorial discretion laws are usually silent regarding standards, protocols, or appropriate considerations for decision making. While states transfer laws vary in the scope and mechanism, they invariably result in many children being tried in adult court and exposed to generally applicable penalty provisions. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and we are reading The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan. Continuing Chapter 1, Section C, Determinate Sentencing Schemes, A Parallel Trend. Around the same time that states were amending their transfer laws, making it easier to prosecute children in adult court, the state and federal governments also implemented more punitive sentencing practices for adult offenders. For context, it is important to understand the array of sentencing policy options. Sentencing guidelines range from mandatory to advisory. If a sentence is truly mandatory, it means that once the jury has convicted the defendant of a certain charge, the judge has no choice but to impose the sentence prescribed by the legislator for that crime. A presumptive sentence guideline, however, suggests a predetermined sentence for a crime, but permits the judge to impose a more lenient alternative sentence if the judge determines that there are mitigation circumstances. Typically, The legislator determines in advance what mitigation factors might justify a downward departure from the presumptive sentence. Advisory guidelines are voluntary in that they provide a benchmark for the sentencing judge, but the judge may depart from the suggested sentence with or without explanation. For most of the 20th century, American judges enjoyed great sentencing discretion, and they could determine what aspects of a defendant's case and history were relevant to the sentencing determination. By the late 20th century, criminal sentencing laws shifted from determinative nature, that is, the legislator specified in advance the sentencing range or sentence itself that attached to an offense, regardless of the particular offender situation. Why the United States adopted a more punitive sentencing posture is a complex question and has been explored extensively, but there are a few known factors that are relevant here. After a period of relative stability, crime rates in the mid-1960s to 1970s increased as the baby boom generation entered its peak crime years and as urbanization occurred. The public became concerned about crime, and politicians responded by making crime control a central feature of political rhetoric. Beginning in the 1970s, lawmakers and politicians embraced a tough-on-crime stance across the board, and by the 1980s, the war on drugs was in full swing. In 1984, Congress passed the Sentencing Reform Act as part of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. The act created the United States Sentencing Commission, charged with creating federal sentencing guidelines and making federal criminal penalties more uniform. At the same time, Congress enacted mandatory minimum sentences for certain federal offenses, most notably drug offenses. State legislators did the same thing. On the state level, this trend began in New York in 1973, with California and Massachusetts following soon thereafter. While the trend toward mandatory minimums in the states was gradual, by 1983, 49 of the 50 states had passed such provisions. At the same time, states increased the number of crimes on their books and eliminated or narrow parole provisions. By the 1990s, more than half of the states had three strikes provisions on the books, which sent repeat offenders, even nonviolent ones, away for long periods of time. Today, one in nine inmates in America is serving life in prison. 
life sentences have become a defining feature of American corrections, even though there is good evidence to suggest that longer sentences are not an effective deterrent to criminal activity. Because of these changes in sentencing practices, by the end of the 21st century, the United States had become the world's largest jailer, sending more people to prison than ever before for longer periods, oftentimes without any individual sentences determination.